So I, I don't know if you've had this experience, but I've had this experience. You're seeing a girl, and you've dated her for a while, and then she's, she feels a bit distant, and you feel like something's coming. And then you talk to her about it, and she says, you know, I think we should break up. It's better for you if we break up. Anybody had that experience? I'm the only one who's been dumped? Are you serious? <laughs> We've had this experience, right? Guy, girl, doesn't matter which way you want to go, where, where someone says to you, we're going to break up. It's better for you. And what are you thinking? Whatever. Better for me. In some sense, I think this is kind of what the disciples were feeling with Jesus. He wasn't breaking up with them, but he was definitely preparing them to go away, that he was going to go away, that he's going to be gone from them. And this is a very difficult time for them because don't forget, they see Jesus as the Messiah. That means God's chosen king. They see him as the one who's going to come and he's going to bring peace on earth. He's going to uh, rid the world of oppression. He's going to bring God's kingdom to pass. They, they see him as that one and he is that one. But now he's talking about going away. And they're thinking, wait a second, we've seen you do miracles. We, we've seen you... Uh, we, we've seen you heal uh, the sick and raise the dead. We've seen you cast out demons. We've seen you calm storms. We've seen you multiply food and feed thousands. You have all that is needed to bring God's kingdom on this earth. Why would you leave? And he's trying to prepare them for his departure. And as we've seen a lot in these chapters, he's talking a lot about the Holy Spirit. Now, for those of you who might not have that much church experience, you might not understand some of these things that we're talking about. And I, and I want you to know, as we, you just heard that we read, you're in good company. Because even Jesus' disciples, who walked with him for three and a half years, were thinking to themselves, I have no idea what this guy's talking about. So when we read Jesus' words and we go, I don't really know what he means, we're in good company. We, we need him to teach us. And we need, as he's going to say here, the Holy Spirit to teach us as well. Now, when we're talking about the Holy Spirit, the Bible that talks about God reveals God to be not just one, but three in one. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. Three who have always existed for eternity past. Three who are together love. And this God so loved that He created the universe so that people could know Him. He creates this universe, creates this planet in just the right point so that we can observe the universe, creates people on this earth who can know Him, who are made in His image. They can actually know Him relationally. And then He Himself becomes a man in the person of Jesus and shows that He is indeed God in human form so that He can then die a, a, a death for us, pain for our sins, and raised from the dead to prove to us all of that is true. Now, the point of that story that we're in, the point of history in, is right before Jesus is going to die. And so he's been pouring his life into these, these now 11 men, these men that he's been wanting to raise up, that he would use to take the message of who he is and what he's done to the whole world. And when he talks about his departure, he wants them to be ready for how he's going to use them that they're going to need something that's beyond themselves. They're going to need God's power to do God's work. And so he's talking about this Holy Spirit. Now, it says, as we just read earlier, that these guys, were their sorrow had filled their heart. They're really discouraged because they believed Jesus was God's chosen king. They believed that he was God's son. 
And they believed that God was going to do something great on the earth. So when he says he's leaving, they're thinking, this is, this is bad news. How can this be good news? They don't understand about what he's going to do. Now, what we want to talk about today is this phrase that Jesus uses when he says to the disciples, I tell you, it's to your advantage that I go away. Jesus is something, saying something radically profound here. He's saying, it's better for you that you relate to me through the Holy Spirit than that you relate to me face to face. I want you to think about that for a second. Because I don't know about you, but if you, I, I've at times wished, man, what it would have been like to actually walk physically in the same space as Jesus. To, to hear his voice audibly. To see him do one of those miracles or to raise him from the dead. I can imagine what that would it be like to eat the bread that he multiplied. What would it have been like to be that? And I can think, how could it at all be an advantage to be on this side of that? But Jesus is saying, listen, there's an advantage to the Spirit's work, even over mine. In a real sense, what Jesus is wanting these guys to understand is that his ministry is even better through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Which means this side of history, this side of the cross and the resurrection and the sending of God's Spirit, we have an advantage even over that three and a half years that the disciples spent with Jesus. Think about that for a second. So how does that work? I'm going to give you three main things about this. You, you should have a little piece of paper. If you, if, you're not, if, you're, if you don't know where it is, you're probably sitting on it. It's a little A5 piece of paper that has some basic notes so you can kind of keep track this is, again, as I prayed, one of the richest parts of Scripture. So there's a lot of information that we're going to give to you today. I better start this clock or I'm going to get in trouble. See, the intro didn't count. This is now the, now the timer starts right now. <laughs> there's a lot of information to give you guys today. So take notes. Feel free to ask questions afterwards. But let's talk about this. What's the first thing we want to see? The advantage of the Spirit's work. The work of Jesus, because of the Spirit's work, listen, the work of Jesus is no longer limited by location. When Jesus was on this earth, He was in one place at one time. So He could share the truth about who God is, the truth about God's love, the truth about God's kingdom with a very small group of people. But look what He says, what Jesus says in verse 8 about the Holy Spirit. He says, when He has come, this is the Spirit of truth, the Holy Spirit, He will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. He'll convict the world. In other words, when the Spirit comes, He's going to do this convicting work to anyone and everyone that is exposed to the truth of Jesus. This word convict, if you think about it, I know you might think of a court of law, and it is a legal term, like, you know, convict, and you might think it means pronounce guilty. It does mean that, but it's bigger than that. You could be in a court of law and a judge could say, you're guilty, and you could still not think you're guilty. This word doesn't just mean that. It doesn't just mean pronounced judgment. It, what it means is to convince you. And so it's the idea that the Holy Spirit's going to convince people of the things that he's going to mention here. Convince them that they need Jesus. Convince them that they can trust Jesus. Convince them that Jesus is the one who's worthy of worship. He's going to do that work. Now, this is, this is great news for us that are Christians because God calls us to go and tell everybody about Jesus. And if you tried to do that, you've probably failed more than succeeded or at least felt like you failed. 
Because I've got to tell you, it's really hard to try to have a conversation with somebody about Jesus. They, they don't always want to listen. And even when they listen, they look at you like you're a bit mad. They think you're crazy. And what Jesus is saying to his disciples is, listen, yes, you're going to go out and I'm going to have you do this great work, but it's not going to really be you making it effective. It's going to be my Holy Spirit who's going to convince people of the truth. That sets us free. We don't have to kind of conjole or, or manipulate or, or, or try to make people feel really bad or really good. We can just tell them who Jesus is as someone who's a, who walks with Jesus and trust that God's Spirit's going to do what only God's Spirit can do to convince other people. He's going to do this work of convincing. What's he going to convince them of? According to Jesus, three things. He says he's going to convince them of sin. And here's what he says, verse 9, of sin because they do not believe in me. So one of the things that the Holy Spirit does is convince people of the consequence of not believing in Jesus. All right? I'm going to give you an analogy, an illustration that I'll use throughout this, at least this section of the message, maybe the whole section, the whole message altogether. I want you to imagine you're on a commercial airline, you're flying to whatever holiday destination you want to go to, and you're on this plane, and as you're sitting on this plane and you're drinking your coffee and you're eating your cookie, the stewardess comes up to you and kind of squats down near you and very quietly says, excuse me, sir or madam, um, just want to let you know, the engines are all about to, to stop working and the plane is going to crash. Under your seat's a parachute. You should probably put that on now. And you think, oh, man. And so you pull out the parachute, you stick on the parachute, and you look around, and no one else is really doing it. They're kind of like, yeah, okay, whatever. They're not really understanding. And so after a while, people are looking at you, and they're kind of snickering because you got this parachute on. So you take the parachute off, you stick it back under your seat, and they go, whatever. And so you're thinking, you know, just because the stewardess says that it's going to crash, I haven't heard the, the captain say we're going to crash. And so, you know, what's the, what's the deal? But then, over the speaker, you hear clear as a bell, the captain saying, this is your captain speaking, we hope you're enjoying your flight, we are going to crash shortly. So you should take the parachute out from under your seat and strap it on soon so you can jump out the plane when it's going to crash. Then you put it on, you still see people kind of snickering, thinking it's funny, and you're going, I don't care, I'm not taking a chance, I'm keeping this parachute on. This is what we mean about the convincing work of the Holy Spirit. The stewardess, that would be us in this scenario, tell people you need Jesus, but it's got to be the captain, the Spirit of God himself, convincing people that they need Jesus. Do you see? Now, there's also this reality that he says it's not just of sin they're going to convince. They they need to believe in Jesus. There's a consequence that they don't believe in Jesus. But also he says of righteousness... Verse 10, because I go to my Father and you see me no more. What does he mean by that? Well, this hasn't happened at this point of the text that we're reading. It hasn't happened yet. But what will happen is, after Jesus is crucified, and then after he rises from the dead, he will ascend to the Father. He'll ascend back into heaven. The the disciples will actually see this happen before their eyes. It's in Acts chapter 1. You can read about it later. And he's referring to this ascension. He's going to go to his Father. So he's connecting Uh, righteousness with the fact that he goes to the Father. The idea here is he's saying that Jesus himself, Jesus is saying, I am the standard of righteousness. The reason I just ascend to heaven and don't have to sort of just die and hope that I get there, but he dies and then resurrects and ascends to heaven, is because that's God's way of saying, this guy is perfect. (laughs) He's the standard of righteousness. 
This is really important as well. Because most of us think that we're pretty good people. We do. Now, Proverbs says each man will proclaim his own goodness. That's what we'll do. We will say, I'm a pretty good person. And the way we figure out that we're pretty good people is we compare ourselves to other people. And the truth is, you know, we, we watched a, a documentary last night for a little series on Netflix about uh, the prison system in California, where I'm from. Brought back lots of memories. And um, I, I was never in prison, don't worry. Uh, um, but I'm watching, I'm watching this show, and I'm looking at these people, and these people are really messed up. These guys got some serious issues. And it's easy to think, oh, I'm so glad I'm not like that guy. And we can look at somebody who's like worse than us and think, I'm actually doing pretty well. But guess what? The standard is not the worst of humanity. The standard is the best of humanity, and his name is Jesus. And so what the Holy Spirit does is he shows us the goodness of, of Jesus. And it's interesting because, you know, almost every religion, maybe apart from Satanism, sees Jesus as a great guy. Do you know, even Islam looks at Jesus as perfect, as sinless. Think about that for a second. Muhammad, not as sinless. Jesus, or Esau, as sinless. Think about that. So, so people see Jesus as, as, as this great standard, but then we don't measure ourselves against the standard. But the Holy Spirit measures, ourself, measures us against that standard. So just in case we think when the plane crashes, we can flap our wings hard enough and fly, he says, no, only Jesus can fly, and that's why you need to strap him on as your parachute. The Holy Spirit convinces us of this. He goes on to say the Holy Spirit will also convince the world of what? He says in verse 11, and of judgment because the ruler of this world has been judged. The rule of this world is a reference to Satan and his demons. That might sound a bit hocus pocus to you. You might be thinking some dude in a red suit with a pitchfork, but that's, that's not how the Bible describes this fallen angel Satan. He's a rebellious angel who convinced a third of the angels to rebel with him. We don't know that much about him except that we know that he's a liar. We know that he's, hell was created for him and those other fallen angels. And we, knows that he, and we know that he wants to take as many people to hell with him as he can. And so one of the things that he does is he tells us, he fights against this work of God's Spirit and tells us, no, you don't need to believe in this Jesus stuff. So even now, if there are questions being thrown into your head, guess where those questions are coming from? But you know what? Jesus said the Holy Spirit will convince of Satan's been judged. Because the tool that Satan likes to use most is you should not be believing in God because if you believe in God, that means you're accountable to God. If you're accountable to God, that means you're in trouble. You don't want to think about that, so don't believe in God. Because death is a really serious, scary thing. But because Jesus conquered death, or in this context was about to conquer death, we don't have to be afraid of it anymore. Jesus conquered death on our behalf. Satan's been judged. Think of it this way, going back to that airplane illustration. He's the one who sabotaged the plane. We're the fools that think that even if it's sabotaged, we can still make this puppy land. And Jesus says, no. Satan's been judged. The plane is definitely sabotaged. It's going to crash. But every single one of you can have this parachute who is Jesus himself. And you can be saved from this. This is what the Holy Spirit wants to convince you of. If we don't go any further today, if we, if we were to stop the message right here and not finish the rest of the verses, this is what I believe that the Holy Spirit wants you to understand most. 
is that this Jesus, this Jesus who's trying to comfort his disciples with the work the Holy Spirit's going to do throughout the world, that same Holy Spirit is working in our midst right now, wanting to convince your heart of the reality of who Jesus is and what he does. See, this is, this is great news because it's not up to me to go to every lost person in the world with the gospel. It's up to me to just be obedient to God and let his Holy Spirit use me to tell anybody who's willing about the gospel. And God will take those feeble efforts and the Holy Spirit will convince people's hearts that they need him. You know, I'm not really that surprised when people don't believe in Jesus when I've talked to them about Jesus. I'm not that surprised, one, because I'm not that good at it, and two, because I understand, I remember what it was like to be lost and think that stuff's crazy. But I'm always just blown away when someone's just, the penny drops, and people just go, I get it. Wow. (laughs) I'm in this plane. It's going to crash. Jesus is the parachute. I need Jesus. Yeah, I get it. It blows me away, and I know it's a work of God's Spirit when he does it. That's what Jesus said the Holy Spirit would do. Now, the work of the Spirit's not limited, uh, I'm sorry, the work of Jesus is no longer limited by location. The fact that Jesus could convince people that he was the Messiah, now the Spirit's convincing people of the same thing all over the world. This is great news for us, guys. We don't have to worry about being in the right place at the right time. Because God is always doing a work. Jesus is always with us by His Spirit, and He's always doing a work if we will just cooperate with Him. This is why Jesus ends the book of Matthew this way. After He calls people to go out and make disciples, He says to them, He gives the disciples this promise. He says, And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Jesus is with us through His Holy Spirit. He's with us when we're here at church. He's with us when we're home. He's with us when we're out. He's with us when we're talking to believers. He's with us when we're talking to non-believers. He's with us through His Holy Spirit, and He wants to use us and work through us to convince the world of the reality of who Jesus is. That's the advantage of the Spirit's work. But also, listen, not only is the work of Jesus not limited by location, but the words of Jesus are not lost in history. What we're reading right now, we're reading them because of actually what Jesus is going to say right now, because of what the Holy Spirit did in in the lives of the apostles. Look at verse 12. Jesus says to the disciples, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. In a very real sense, the disciples did not understand what they knew. They walked with Jesus for three and a half years. They saw what Jesus did. They saw that he had authority over creation, over nature. He had authority over demons. He had authority over sickness. He had authority over death. He had the authority to forgive sins. They saw him do all that, but they didn't get what that meant. We're going to talk more about that in a minute. And so he says, I have many things to say to you, but he says in verse 13, however... You can't bear them now, but however, when He, the Spirit of truth, that's the Holy Spirit, has come, He will guide you into all truth. For He will not speak on His own authority, but whatever He hears, He will speak, and He will tell you things to come. Now, 
You, you might see in your notes that there's kind of, I use two different words here, that the Holy Spirit brings revelation and illumination. I use two words there on purpose. Because it's really important to understand that what Jesus is saying to the apostles here is directly applicable to them, but then it has a secondary application for us. If you miss that, you're going to get confused about how God has revealed truth to us. Okay? So Jesus has made a couple of promises like this. Promises of the Spirit's work specifically for these 11 disciples. Something that He's doing with them that doesn't happen with everybody else. Something unique about these 11 disciples. Listen to this. This is John chapter 14, verse 26, and then John chapter 15, verse 26 and 27. Jesus says, When the Advocate, that's another word for the Holy Spirit, when the Advocate comes, whom I will send to you, the Spirit of truth, who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me, uh, and you also must te- testify, for you have been with me from the beginning. Keep that in mind. <clears throat> he goes on to say, in, in, in the book of Acts, we see in the book of Acts, after Jesus is resurrected, after he's been uh, ascended to heaven, that the disciples are wanting to know who, who else should they add to their midst. You guys remember Judas, who committed suicide, Judas, who walked away from the 12 disciples. They thought, we need another 12th disciple. Listen to what they said. When they're trying to figure out who the 12th disciple is, Peter says, it is necessary to choose one of the men who have been with us the whole time the Lord Jesus was living among us, beginning from John's baptism to the time that Jesus was taken up, that's ascended, from us. For one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. Now, follow me with this, okay? Oh, I forgot to read a verse, didn't I? Sorry. I forgot to read the first part of the verse, which is in, in, in John chapter 14, that the Holy Spirit whom the Father will send in my name, Jesus said, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. This is what I want you to understand. Jesus made promises to the apostles specifically about what they would understand about his words. He gave them a specific ability to recall what he said and to explain what he said that has an authority that we as just everyday Christians do not have. The apostles were given a specific authority and a specific ability to remember exactly what God's Spirit wanted them to remember. So they would not just know what was, re- what was said, but also know what it meant. They could recall all these things. The book that we hold in our hands, this book, the Gospel of John, was written by one of those apostles, by John. John wrote these things by the power of the Holy Spirit. He remembered the events, the things he witnessed, but also by the power of the Spirit, he could explain why those things were significant. This is really important to understand. This is not some sort of doctrine or teaching that we've come up in the last 400 years. This is what the first followers of Jesus understood and believed, that God had given them something. They saw Jesus in a way you and I have not. Therefore, they have an authority about who Jesus is and what he's done that is over what we might experience or feel or believe. This is important. Because when we're talking about the work of God's Spirit, God's Spirit does not work apart from God's Word. And God's Spirit does not work outside the boundaries of God's Word. In other words, if there's something happening that you think is God's Spirit and it doesn't jive with what God's Word says, guess what? It ain't God's Spirit. 
because God's Spirit did what needed to be done through the apostles so that we can know what we can expect God's Spirit to do for us as well. Are you following me? Now, that being said, there is still an application that we might call illumination that the Holy Spirit does for us. That is, He opens our eyes to the truth of what Jesus has said and what the apostles have explained. We read about this, one, in 2 Peter chapter 1, where Peter is really clear. Peter says in 2 Peter 1, For we are not making up clever stories, talking about him and the other apostles, when we told you about the powerful coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. We saw his majestic splendor with our own eyes. In other words, Peter says, We are just telling you what we saw in history, who this Jesus was and what he did and how it applies. Now, the Apostle Paul, who would eventually, who would also see Jesus resurrected, he, he wrote this. He prayed this for Christians uh, in a place called Ephesus. Listen to this. This is Paul's prayer. He says, I pray that out of his glorious riches, he, speaking of God, may strengthen you with power through his spirits in your inner being, that, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in faith, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp, that is to understand, how wide and long and high and deep the love of Christ. And to know that this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Do you you see what Paul's praying there? Paul is praying that God's Spirit would open our eyes to the truth of God's Word. That's why there's a group of people every Sunday morning from 9.45 to 10.15 who pray for the service. They would pray that God's Spirit would do that here. That in spite of, uh, of my weakness or Adam or Joe's weakness in preaching up here, that God's Spirit would still reveal truth to you. That you would know what you can't just know naturally. And that is how grand and massive and majestic and real God's love is for you. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. He wants to do this work. This is great news for us. We didn't have to be there hearing Jesus speak to know what Jesus said is true. Do you know why? Because Jesus made sure that there was eyewitnesses who saw all that he did and said Jesus made sure that those eyewitnesses had his spirit so they could write down accurately all that he did and said and what it means. And his Holy Spirit comes comes alongside every person who hears the gospel and, and challenges them to believe the truth. And then when we believe, his Holy Spirit dwells in us and begins to teach us the trustworthiness of these words. That's what he does. This is good news. I know that those of you who are believers are going to know exactly what I mean, and those of you who are still investigating uh, Christianity, this might seem hard to understand. But I have a conversation with God in the morning when I read the Scriptures. Because when I'm reading the Scriptures, I, I know they're not written to me. I know that, that when John's Gospel was written, it was written to Christians that were in a Greek culture in the first century. I understand that. I understand that knowing that it's important so I can interpret it rightly. But I also know that as I'm reading it and understanding what John was wanting those people to say, 
that at the same time that God's Spirit is showing me why this is important for me to know. And as God's Spirit shows me that, I respond to Him in prayer and say, God, yes, help me to walk in this. Help me to do this. Help me to believe this promise. Help me to obey this command. Forgive me for doing this sin. Help me to love in this way. There's there's an ongoing conversation. Why? Because of the reality of who the Holy Spirit is and what the Holy Spirit does. Do you realize that the 12 disciples or the 11 disciples didn't even have that? Even though they spent most of their waking hours with Jesus for three and a half years, when they, were, when they weren't awake, you know, or when he was off doing something else, or when he only took three of them aside, other guys missed out. We never have to miss out. We have God, God's very spirit dwelling in us if we're believers, if we're Jesus followers. We don't have to miss out. His words are real. We can hear from him on a daily basis. Now he says in verse 14, he says that the Holy Spirit will glorify me for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. He says all the things that the Father has are mine, therefore I said that he will take of mine and declare it to you. Do you notice that all three members of the Trinity are mentioned in this verse, in these verses? He says he, the Holy Spirit, will glorify me, God, so God the Spirit will glorify God the Son. God the Spirit will take what belongs to God the Son All things that God the Father has belong to God the Son. Therefore, the Spirit will take what belongs to God the the Son and God the Father and declare it to us, God's people. The wholeness of God is revealed in this verse, in these verses. Now the point, though, the main point that Jesus wants us to see is when the Holy Spirit speaks, what the Spirit wants to emphasize is the person and the work of Jesus. So you guys probably saw the little tagline. You've noticed the tagline for a church, it's all about Jesus. Do you know why that's our tagline? Because it's all about Jesus. Not just our church, but the whole scripture is all about Jesus. Being a Christian is all about Jesus. Christianity is not an it. It's a who. (laughs) It's about him. It's about knowing him. It's about relating to him. So Jesus ends up being crucified, resurrected, and when he's resurrected, he appears to the disciples many different times. One of the times that he appears to the disciples is when two of them, they're not named who it is, but two disciples are walking uh, to this little village called Emmaus. And as they're walking to Emmaus, they're really discouraged, they're sad because Jesus, whom they love, has been crucified, and now they're hearing rumors that Jesus has been made alive. And so they're kind of sad, and so what happens is Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, starts walking on the road with these guys, and they don't recognize it's Jesus. And so he says to them, why are you guys so sad? And they're all, are you the only stranger in Jerusalem? This, we, this Jesus, we thought, everyone thought he was the Messiah, God's chosen king. But then he was crucified, and now people are saying he's risen from the dead. We don't know what this stuff means. And so Jesus looks at these guys And he says, man, you guys are so slow to believe. And this is what he says. Listen to this. Jesus says to these guys, it says, and beginning at Moses and all the prophets, it says, Jesus expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. In other words, the resurrected Jesus, he's he's conquered death. He sees the disciples. They don't recognize him. But what he says is, listen, 
you guys are so slow to believe. And he begins to give him this Bible study. And he takes him from the book of Genesis through the book of Malachi and kind of just quotes these scriptures and says, this is how this works with Jesus the Messiah. This is why the Messiah had to be born a man. This is why the Messiah had to be crucified. This is why the Messiah had to be resurrected. And he's teaching them all the stuff about Jesus. The whole theme of his Bible study was himself, was Jesus. This is why our tagline is all about Jesus, because Jesus said it was all about Jesus. <laughs> this is what he does. Uh, this is really profound because, think about it, if you just rose from the dead and you had all the supernatural power, wouldn't you kind of show off a little bit? That's what we would do, wouldn't we? We'd stand up and say, I'm Jesus. I've been resurrected. Watch this. Poof. <laughs> Full lamb supper right there for you. That's what we do. But Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus goes back to the scriptures and he goes, look at all these things God has been saying from the very beginning that this is the culmination of his plan, sending me to die for you, to resurrect for you, to ascend for you, to send my spirit to you so that my kingdom could come. It's all been about what I'm going to do. Now, the funny thing is, is they still don't recognize Jesus, and so they convince him to kind of not keep walking towards Emmaus and to go off into this room, and they are going to have a meal with him. They're being hospitable to this stranger. They have no idea who it is. And when Jesus takes the bread they're going to eat, and he breaks it and gives thanks, their eyes are open. They go, oh, it's Jesus. He's really resurrected. And then he disappears. <laughs> And they're like, what just happened? And here's what they said. Listen. They said, and they said to one another, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked with us on the road and while he opened the scriptures to us? We pray every Sunday that you would get this kind of heartburn. <laughs> that you would hear the scriptures and you would go, man, God is speaking to me. Jesus needs to be trusted. So, he says really clearly to his disciples, the Spirit's going to emphasize my, who I am and what I've done. He's going to glorify me. It's all about me. Now, the last section is going to go really fast from verse 16 to 24. Jesus says to these guys, a little while and you will see me, and again a little while, I'm sorry, I keep saying that wrong, a little while and you will, you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me because I go to the Father. Now as we read earlier, these guys had no idea what he was talking about. Now what Jesus is talking about when he says, a, a little while you will not see me, he means I'm going to be crucified and buried, and you're not going to see me. But then a little while again, and you'll see me again, why? Because he's going to be resurrected. Now, the first little while was a matter of hours before he's arrested and crucified. The second little while is about a matter of days when he's resurrected three days after the fact, okay? So that's what this little while means. But they don't get it. Now, this is not the first time they didn't get it when Jesus was talking about his death and resurrection. Listen to this. In Mark chapter, where is it? I can't find it. In Mark chapter, uh, Mark chapter um, 8, there it is. Oh, there it is. Thank you. Mark chapter 8, in verse 31, here's what Jesus says. Jesus says, Then Jesus began to teach the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the teachers of the law. Then he must be killed and after three days rise again. Now, when Jesus says this to the disciples, you know what happens? 
Peter says, no way, absolutely not. You're never going to die. And Jesus says to him, get behind me, Satan, because this is, I have to do this. Now, Jesus goes on two more times in the Gospel of Mark. You can read it later on in Mark chapter 9, verses 31 and 32, and Mark chapter 10, verses 33 and 34, to again predict his, predict his death and resurrection. He predicts his arrest, torture, death, and resurrection very specifically to these guys. And none of the times do they get it. Because they're so convinced that if God would send his son, there's no way the son could die. They're so convinced if, the, if the God chooses a king to rid oppression, that king cannot be vulnerable and weak. There's no way that could happen. They don't get what God is doing through his death and resurrection, through Jesus' death and resurrection. What God is doing is providing a way for everyone to be forgiven, for everyone to be right with God. They don't get that. And so when he says it this time in John 16, they still don't get it. What's interesting to me is that they don't say anything to Jesus. They're just kind of talking amongst themselves. Do you get it? No, I don't get it. What's he talking about? I have no idea what he's talking about. And I can just imagine them saying, yeah, okay, great, Jesus, keep preaching. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> now, this is comforting to me, and hopefully this is comforting to you, because if you're sitting here today and you're going, I have no idea what you're talking about, John. That's all right. That's okay. But you know why he's asking him? Hey, are you asking about this? Because Jesus wants them to ask him. Maybe what you need to do, if you're going to have no idea about this Jesus stuff or what it means, maybe you need to pray your first prayer. God, would you help me understand this? If you're real, would you open my eyes to this stuff? Would you help me understand this? Would you dare ask that prayer? Would you dare say that prayer? God, would you help me understand this stuff? I love this because it tells us something about the Holy Spirit's work, that the Holy Spirit is the one who, who encourages us to be honest in our communication. You may have this mindset, whether you've been around church or not been around church, you may have this mindset that you think you have to act a certain way in front of God. And you might forget that you're always in front of God. Always. And because you're always in front of God and because this God is so slow to anger and so quick to, so, to show mercy and grace, you ought to be completely and utterly honest with him. God, I don't understand, or I don't get it, or why is it so hard, or why is there so much suffering, or why, why did Jesus speak in ways that are hard to get? Why is it like this? Why does this guy talk so much? <laughs> Whatever it is, honest communication. God can handle our honest communication. So he begins to talk to him in verse 20. He says, Most surely I say to you that you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will be turned into joy. Then he gives this analogy of a woman giving birth. Now, it's interesting because this, this thing he's talking about, that, that, that you're gonna, this is gonna, something's going to happen, you're going to weep and, and, and lament, but the world's going to rejoice. It's really obvious he's talking about his crucifixion. So when Jesus is crucified, the disciples are just grieved. What's happened? They see whom they love, whom they saw have power over everything, succumb to Roman soldiers and to be beaten to a pulp and then to be crucified. And they're confused and they're hurting. How would you feel if you saw the person you loved most treated like that? They're, they're like, what's happened? All their hopes are dashed. 
And what's also happening is all the religious people, all the religious leaders at least of the day are going, yeah, get rid of this guy who thinks he's the Messiah. Glad he's crucified. We can end all this nonsense. The Roman soldiers are like, yes, a little bit more peace we can have. No one else trying to stir up the problems that we have in the Roman Empire. So the world's rejoicing and they're weeping. But what happens? Jesus doesn't stay dead, does he? (laughs) He comes back to life three days later. And they begin to understand by the work of the Holy Spirit that Jesus' death is actually paying the price for their sin. So the very thing that caused them to be grieved and to sorrow more than they've ever felt before, the very crucifixion of Jesus became the reason they rejoiced. Wow, Christ was crucified for me. It sounds a bit twisted, doesn't it? My best friend just died a horrible death. Yay! It sounds horrible unless he's resurrected. But when he's resurrected, and we know that what he's done, according to his words, pays for our sin, then we say like Paul said. Paul Paul wrote this. Listen to what Paul says about the cross of Jesus. Paul says, As for me, may I never boast about anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because of that cross, my interest in this world has been crucified and the world's interest in me has also died. How could that thing that was such a horrible thing turn into such a glorious thing? Because God was doing a work by His Spirit. God was doing a work. He was, the Bible says of Jesus that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, bringing the world back to himself. This is what the Holy Spirit does. Listen, the Holy Spirit transforms trials into triumphs. He takes things that are generally bad things and works them together for good. The cross proves that. That's why the Holy Spirit always brings us back to the cross. That's why we do communion. In just a little, in a few minutes, we're going to pass out some non-alcoholic wine and some crackers. They're crackers without yeast. They're unleavened crackers. And they represent the sinless body of Jesus and the sinless blood of Christ that pays for our sin. And we do this to, to... in a sense, give aid to the Holy Spirit to remind us of the sufficiency of Christ's work for us. That's why we do it. That that thing that seemed like such a horrible thing ended up being a glorious thing. Interesting that, that Jesus would use this picture of a woman giving birth. You know, pain doesn't cause pregnancy, usually. <laughs> Pregnancy is usually, or it's meant to be, uh, love comes together, and when love comes together, God produces a child from it. But giving birth is painful. But when that baby is born, what happens? Usually, the mother's like blown away, totally happy. Why? Because a human being's coming into the world. In other words, listen, like childbirth, our pain is bringing forth something new. Not creating new life, but bringing forth new life. 
God's promise, the cross promises us, the Holy Spirit teaches us that God uses all of our pain to bring life. God's promised this. All things work together for the good of those that love God and are called according to His purposes. If you are a Jesus follower, your pain has a purpose, even if you haven't figured out what that purpose is yet. Even if you can't see that purpose until you see God face to face. When we see God face to face, we're not going to just see the good stuff in our life and say, thank you God for the good stuff. We're going to see all the bad stuff and go, wow, thank you God. You used every single bit of pain in my life, not just to help me, but to help all your people. Somehow, you worked it together for good. That's what the cross proves to us. That's what the Holy Spirit testifies to us. That's why he says in verse 22, therefore you now have sorrow, but I will see you again and your heart will rejoice and your joy no one can take from you. Peter says this, so when your faith remains strong through many trials, it will bring you much praise and glory and honor on the day when Jesus Christ is revealed to the, to the whole world. Isn't that amazing to think? We know when we see Jesus, we're going to praise him. But you know when we see Jesus as Jesus followers, he's also going to praise us. Not worship us, but he's going to say, well done, good and faithful servant. And he's going to put a crown of reward on our head. And guess what we're going to do? No, Lord, they belong to you. He says, listen, Peter says, you love him even though you have never seen him. And though you do not see him now, you trust him and you rejoice with a glorious, inexpressible joy. This is what the Holy Spirit wants to produce in us, a joy. He wants to, to show us that all that Christ has done is enough. That even though none of us have seen Jesus face to face, we can know Jesus with an intimacy, with a closeness that the disciples didn't even know until after his death and resurrection. That's why Jesus brings up prayer here. He says, in that day, you will ask me nothing. Probably referring to the day when they see him face to face. You're not going to be asking me for stuff, but most surely I say to you, whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give you. He says, until now you've asked nothing in my name, ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. Do you understand what this is saying? Think about this whole context. You're going to suffer, it's going to be difficult. You're going to sorrow, but that sorrow is going to turn to joy. I am going to go away, but it's going to be to your advantage. Jesus in this whole context is saying, don't you understand, listen, that when I send my Holy Spirit, he's going to lead you to enjoy a real close relationship with the Father the same way I've enjoyed the Father and he's going to lead you to do that and show you that you can have that because of all that I have accomplished through my death and resurrection. So we use that whole airplane analogy and I'm going to ask the people to get ready to pass out the elements of community whoever is going to brothers and sisters are going to pass out the community elements if you can get ready to do that now. We use that whole plane analogy that you're there, you've been told by the stewardess or steward, get ready, the plane's going to crash. Hopefully you actually heard the announcement, you weren't paying attention to the movie too much, you heard the announcement that the captain says, yes, indeed, the plane is going to crash. And there's a parachute that you have to put on. 
just saying you believe the parachute is good and leave it in under your seat isn't enough. You actually have to strap the parachute on. You have to put on Jesus. How do you do that? You do that through simple faith. One, you acknowledge, I need that parachute. Jesus, I need your death and resurrection. Otherwise, when judgment day comes, this plane plane crashes, I'm in trouble. So you believe that and you acknowledge that to God. You also, by faith, ask Jesus to take over your life. You say, Lord, would you come into my life? Would you forgive my sins? And would you fill me with your Holy Spirit so I could actually do what you want me to do? So I actually know how to behave on the plane until it crashes. <laughs> and you look forward to the day that the plane crashes. You know why? Because that is the end of all oppression. When the plane crashes, you know what happens? That represents everything evil that's in the world being completely, once and for all, being destroyed. One day, the world that we all want is going to be a reality. No more death. No more suffering, no more sorrow because of the work of Jesus.